0: It's a patient game, and, it's a, and that's why we don't recommend investing all your money in the S&P 500 stock index and in one of the funds that mirrors it, because we have a record recently of 12 years of negative returns in the S&P 500. And if, unless you're willing to take that risk, I don't recommend you put all your money in there.
1: once more unto the breach dear friend I'll I'll close the wall up with our english dead good morning ladies and gentlemen boys and girls and welcome to at least for us another exciting episode of the personal wealth coach with jake mcclure and on the line with me i have jeff mcclure wow we have resolved the technical difficulties of communication between portland oregon salado texas and temple texas Jeff Elderbaldy here is sitting in Salado, Texas. Jake Baldy is sitting in Portland, <clears throat> Oregon. The radio studio is in Temple, Texas. And for some reason, that's not amazing to most people anymore.
0: What's really amazing is the fact that you're two hours different in time from me. Yes. And from the station, which uh, means that there's a time warp going on.
1: I'll let you know. Can you let me know how, how things are going to be? In a couple of hours, because I don't know yet it's it is
0: it's going to be it's going to be cool and rainy in a couple of hours,
1: okay, so is
0: it cool and rainy there now?
1: no, no, it's pretty sunny, which people here are keep telling me that it's normal it's not normal for it to be sunny like this, but every time I come to Portland it's sunny, I think they're just trying to keep people from coming to Portland
0: makes sense adding the high income tax,
1: yeah which because I'm not living here. I don't even have to pay that. So maybe they're lying about that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a problem with only believing what you can experience for yourself. <laughs> this is the personal wealth coach, and we have some disclosures to tell you about what this radio program is and what
0: it isn't. Do you want to do this one? Well, I can say that the information that we, we're not giving out, edu- we're giving out educational information and not investment advice, despite the fact that the Personal Wealth Coach is a registered investment advisor in Salado, Texas. We do wealth management for relatively wealthy people. By definition, if we're doing wealth management, you have to have wealth. That's true. We've, we've, we've concluded that after many years. The other thing is that uh, the information we do give you educationally, but not as investment advice, is information that we've, and this is my favorite one, we have re- we received this information from sources we deem reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completen- completeness of said information.
1: In fact, we'll almost guarantee it's not complete. If you're hearing it on here, we're not going to spend the entire two hours of the radio program delving for completeness in one article that we read.
0: But, and it'd be a violation of copyright anyway. Yeah.
1: So from the last piece here is that you mentioned that we are a registered, the the personal wealth coaches are registered investment advisory firm. It's registered with the SEC. But just because we're registered with the SEC on the fiduciary side of everything we do, well, that's all of what we do, isn't it? Hmm. Yep. That doesn't mean that they have approved us in any way because they don't do that. That's not, that'd be like, going out and saying, I, I'm selling this and it's been approved by the FBI. Well, the FBI doesn't approve. They just come and see when you're doing something wrong. Same with the SEC. They don't give a thumbs up. They can say, yep, you're registered appropriately and we'll do what we can to inspect and regulate and all that good stuff. But they don't They don't give any thumbs up. And we're supposed to say that every, every week. It just makes me wonder if people are out there thinking thinking that the SEC can give a stamp of approval and say someplace is safe. If you ever hear anybody say that they've got the stamp of approval from the SEC, that's kind of fraudulent activity. So just, just be aware of that. That's a little warning out there. We're required to say they don't give a stamp of approval, but it's really important to realize if somebody is saying that, that ain't what the SEC does. There. That was an extra dic- disclosure on all radio advertisement.
0: Now it's time to talk about the markets. Yes, you want to
1: jump in? Get get your look
0: well. Your S&P gear 500, on. The S five hundred. The S and P five hundred rose again, which we use the we use the S and P five hundred as the indicator of the broad stock market. It may not, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it's better than anything else that's out there. We think, and uh, it closed out the week at a new record high of forty one eighty five point four seven, which is now, just numbers. Yeah. Well, the Dow. Past thirty-four thousand this week, which is just numbers, but they're important numbers. They're round
1: numbers. That's far more important. Everyone knows when round no- round numbers are much more important. I don't particularly know why, but we can all agree that they are, and let's make them headlines.
0: So the, we're getting really close to the fulfillment we'll of the book Dow thirty-six thousand that was written back in nineteen ninety-nine, I think it was, mm-hmm. or two thousand, and said that the. But they said that the Dow would go through 36,000 by 2002 or 2004. So they only missed it by 20 years. Yeah, that's not. That they get a couple of decades. It's not too bad. It's just a matter of being patient, which tells you a lot about investing, by the way. You can get there, you just have to be patient. Get rich quick anyway. doesn't
1: work very well. Get rich. Yeah, that works. I know people that got rich. I don't know of any that kept their wealth that got
0: rich fast. There's get poor quick too. Yeah. Anyway, the that left the S and P five hundred up one point three seven percent for the week and eleven point four three percent year to date, which is truly impressive. We're about a third of the year. We're about a third of the way into the year, so that would mean that if it just kept on doing what it's doing all year, and I don't know that it will or won't, that would indicate a thirty three percent rise in the in the S and P five hundred, which I don't think is going to happen. But we don't annualize it. One point three seven percent for the week is a pretty phenomenal jump. On very little new data, just confirming the old data now it's interesting I mentioned this I mentioned this in the we mentioned this in the newsletter um the, da- the s and p five hundred is this week up at the end of the week was up forty five point six percent from a year ago, which doesn't mean anything. Well, it means something because it's a it's a valid number. The problem is that it crashed about a year ago and it was near its bottom and it's come up 45.6% from there. And so all the everybody's done.
1: Million, everybody's done amazing then, is what you're saying. Over 12, over, if they didn't sell out at the bottom, they
0: pretty yeah. well did what? amazing. It's hard to remember our fears, but if you have a sizable portfolio and it's invested in market securities, I suspect a year ago you were having some trepidation. If you're having trepidation, just remember this lesson, this has happened Happened in 2007 through nine. In 2009, when it bottomed, a lot of people wanted out. The reason the market goes down violently towards the end of a market fall is because a lot of people are selling. And there's a lot of people that sell towards the bottom, and those are the losers. And that's not to say that they're losers as a person, but they certainly lost a lot of money. That's when the fear hits its maximum. And those who stuck around have seen it come back up by 45.6% the S&P 500 which we don't even recommend as an investment vehicle necessarily but it's good it for isn't. tracking the market in general. Yeah it is. And we are in a bull market folks. Over the last 10 years dating from April of 2011 the standard poor's 500 has turned an average annual return of about 12% a year. That tells us we're in a bull market. Why does it tell us a bull market because The norm over long periods of time is closer to 7%. As a matter of fact, the 20-year return, which takes us all the way back to 2001, when the market was just starting into the 2000 through 2002 market collapse, the average annual return has been 6.77% per year, which doesn't sound like much in line of what we've seen recently. But if you'd hung on for 20 years, you'd certainly done very well, better than you could have done just about anywhere else. And... It took, But this this is the important thing to remember. If you'd invested 20 years ago in the S&P 500, in an S&P 500 index fund that tracked the S&P 500 perfectly, if one of them does, it would have taken you 12 years to break even. And it's a hard 12 years to hang on. Matter of fact, a lot of people didn't hang on. I know people who didn't hang on during that period of time. They got out and got into something that was interesting and promised a much higher return, and in many cases lost most or all of their money. It's a patient game. And, it's a, and that's why we don't recommend investing all your money in the S&P 500 stock index and in one of the funds that mirrors it. Because we have a record recently of 12 years of negative returns in the S&P 500. And if, unless you're willing to take that risk, I don't recommend you put all your money in there. Uh,
1: yeah, it's important to know, particularly right now and we'll be talking about this later in the episode, that there's a lot of there are a lot of people that are trading right now that generally haven't traded in the, pla- in the past. And the amount of trade volume that's taken up by retail investors has gone from around 5% of the market to about 20% of the market. What does that mean? It means that there's going to be a lot more volatility. And we'll get into more, more detail about that later in the episode. But I think it's important to recognize that rags to riches usually ends in rags. Unless you took a long time to get from rags to riches or a decent amount of time rather than overnight. And that's just, we'll, this, that's a truism that lasts across all human nature throughout history. So we'll come back to that. But you're, you still have more of the market to talk about.
0: Yeah, we follow another index, the CRSP mid-cap value index, because it's the other side of the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is largely driven right now and its value is largely in large cap growth stocks things like microsoft and apple and google and alphabet so we follow the crsp mid-cap value index because it's the other end of the of the of the s p 500 it is the is it stocks that are value whose price is based on underlying value of the company rather than on what they think it's going to do in the future Interestingly enough, it's up about 17% year-to-date. as opposed to the 11.43% of the S&P 500, which is still indicative of a turnaround that's going on as money's shifting gradually out of growth into value, which is a good sign. And I don't say that to, to say that you should invest in value or you should invest in growth or anything else. It's a matter of the fact that this market, is the base of the market is the value side. And if the base is growing then the top can afford to grow some more without falling over. But if the base starts shrinking and the top continues to grow, then there's reason to be concerned. In other words, the market is growing more stable statistically. Uh, one of the reasons the stock ro- stocks rose this week was that the 10-year U.S. Treasury note fell. It fell to 1.584%. And I've read several analyses that indicate this is a fair value for, the, for what we're seeing. And the reason it fell was not because somebody thinks that the economy will not do well in the future, but because there was a fear earlier that took it up to 1.75, fear of a core inflation increase, that somehow inflation was going to come roaring back. But with more and more data that we get, that indicates that underlying inflation just isn't there. There's going to be a short burst of apparent inflation and some actual inflation. If you've been to the gas pump recently, you've seen what inflation is, because the gas prices are up 22% from where they were a year ago. But go ahead. Underlying inflation just isn't there. We're not seeing it in wages. We're not seeing it in, in materials. We're seeing temporary price hikes, largely due to logistics and due to the rebound effect of coming out of the uh, coming out of the pandemic. Part of that is being driven by the fact that we've paid out three stimulus payments now, and people have paid down their debts. They've uh, they've built up their savings and they're feeling much more free to spend money on things. And and we'll get into this more later, services, uh, restaurants and leisures, the leading growth area in retail sales. Another thing we follow is West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil. No,
1: uh, uh, we don't physically follow it. Uh, sometimes it well, rides I, along in the vehicle with us. but
0: Yeah, it, it, kind of, it kind of is up in the engine, which is in front of me in my vehicle. So you do follow anyway, it. You I are do. following it, yeah. It's a sixty three oh eight uh sixty three dollars.
1: Sixty three dollars and eight cents per barrel. A that barrel. is that is uh, forty two gallons per barrel. Just for those of yeah. you that are nerds like us, that's an important number.
0: And that is for a very simple well, a couple of simple reasons. One demand has gone up rather dramatically in the United States, particularly. And the other thing is well, airlines are starting to fill up. Yeah. They're, Some airlines are flying 70% full right now, whereas before they were at 44%.
1: Well, having some experience in travel at the moment, being vaccinated is nice. Um, Getting on airplanes is... I've got two little ones. I got two kids. And it was really easy to travel when the airports are mostly empty. It was shockingly easy. You know, I'm used to trying to figure some way of blocking traffic as we walk across a hallway. um, Didn't have to do that. The hallways are mostly empty. I just had to tell the kids, you know, next time we're in an airport like this, we're going to have to walk single file, not spread all the way across like this, because usually there's other people that we're walking alongside and coming the other direction. And my little ones looked up at me like I was a little bit insane because the airports you, are empty. You are. You are. The airports
0: are empty and they always will be.
1: But getting on the airplane, the, f- the number of flights was down, but each flight was relatively full. And that's, yep. that's kind of a nice anecdotal way of looking at the big picture data that we get. You know, Generally, I'm looking at the numbers from lots and lots and lots of planes rather than sitting in one. So to be able to compare the thing when you're saying they're up to 70% full, on their flights, they have reduced the number of flights still, but they're anticipating a great demand. It's already starting. The booking process has already started. So this is something that is very measurable in the recovery.
0: Now, well, you could say that there's a tremendous growth in demand for oil though, if you look for one year. Oh yeah, absolutely. West West Texas Intermediate crude is up 248% since last April. The, the price at the pump
1: is only 22 percent up, but 248 percent. And at the end of April, it's going to be interesting. It's not going to have a meaningful number because we were in the negative dollars per barrel uh, at the end of April last year, which means that we'll have something like later in this uh, later in the month we might have some weird number to share on the return of oil because. How do you calculate a return on something someone paid you to take? (laughs) That's what happens when you have negative value on oil. So there's no real way of calculating your profit. It's all profit if somebody paid you to take it. You have some expenses you pull out, but basically it's all profit. And that's something we talked about at the time. This is not the death of oil. The fact that we can't store it anywhere is why it was costing people money to get rid of it rather than people paying them money.
0: We can normally store it in big tanks, but the tanks got full. Yep,
1: yeah, we can store it in big tanks and little tanks and and uh, ships over out in the water. But all of them were full. <laughs> Everything was full because we had too much oil and not enough demand. So we I had think the
0: a, key thing is. Go ahead. Sorry, the key thing is that if you're looking at economic numbers this week, or you're seeing headlines on economic numbers this week, and some of them are pretty scary, and some of them are pretty good. It's good to remember that one-year reporting, which is dip, which is the standard reporting for, for instance, the Chinese, when they report their GDP, it's for one year, uh, is right now very misleading because things were shut down a year ago. And you shouldn't pay too much attention to it. It's nice, it's nice to see the big numbers, and they make headlines. For instance, the Chinese GDP was reported to have grown more than 18% in the last 12 months. And you could project that out there, and pretty soon the Chinese would occupy the entire world, and I'm sure they would love us to think that.
1: Yeah, that would just be like eight or ten years, they would cover the planet, and there would be nothing left but China.
0: Probability is the United States will grow nominally more than China this year. Every, Every indicator suggests that in terms of dollars or yuan, they're translated back and forth, the number, the growth of GDP of the United States of America will be greater than that of China, greater than that of China this year, which is not probably too comforting to the Chinese, but is a reality. We'll both grow somewhere in the six six and a half percent range, but we have a bigger economy to start with. So six and a half percent of something bigger is bigger than six and a half percent of something smaller. And so, don't get too concerned about the scare that you hear that the Chinese are growing so fast that at eighteen percent. Per year in five years the size of their economy would double and they would be by far and away the biggest economy in the world but that's not possible
1: well, if we measured directly back to this point in April of last year our GDP growth at this point is well above 18% I would say because we were in the middle of a lockdown this was the first lockdown nothing was going so if you measure from that point what's the GDP when nothing is going to this point, well, we, which is like 80, some 85, 86% of what we were, man, we've got actually, a lot of growth.
0: Actually, we didn't shut down anywhere near as severely as That's China. China did. That's correct. We shut down about 20% of our economy uh, at 20 to 25% of our economy at the worst the worst lockdown we, we had. had. Chinese literally shut down their entire central portion of their country and said, nobody can move and nobody can go to work. You got to stay at home by law. Yeah. And so the bottom, their bottom is far, far lower than our bottom was. Now, they were able to. Wait, are we supposed to
1: talk about that on the radio?
0: I think so. Oh, Okay, go ahead. The issue is that they may have slowed the spread of the pandemic, but they've still got it going over there off and on, and it's still going to affect them. Uh, We're doing a better job right now of vaccinating they are with far better vaccines than they have. Their the success rate on their vaccines, Sino, whatever it is, SinoSync, I think it's called, Yeah, is 67%, whereas the vaccines that we're using, the Moderna and the, what's the other one? Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and Fis- Pfizer, Pfizer, Pfizer and Moderna, which are the primary vaccines we're using, have a 95% effectiveness. Uh, the Chinese are still going to have to be fighting COVID to some degree for a long time. If we just continue on and we get enough people vaccinated, we'll get we'll get to the point where we have good herd immunity far before the Chinese do,
1: And the Chinese will fall back again and again on what worked for them in the past, which is a total shutdown where this is something we've talked about since the beginning of the pandemic. That we would see a greater response to the Chinese shutdown than to our own, that their economy would recover first, and then we tracked it as it actually happened. This isn't it was it's really not reading tea leaves when we look at this. They have a stated plan. They have a plan that was written during SARS that says, this is how you deal with an epidemic. This is how you deal with a pandemic. It's very clear, and it involves lockdown. And eventual vaccination, but they want to go with Chinese sourced vaccines, which is interesting because it looks like the Germans wanting to go with the German sourced vaccines and the and the uh, British with British sourced and and so on. Where we're getting Pfizer and Moderna and basically anything anything that's good, we're using. Uh, the, this is this is an interesting factor. The Chinese clearly state that the way they deal with large pandemic epidemic events is they shut down. If we're vaccinated enough to have herd immunity, we don't have to do that anymore, which means they have the start, stop, start, stop issue, which will put further strain on supply chains. But the reality is until you get herd immunity, you're going to have big events with COVID-19. And that's, I mean, I, I don't think anybody can doubt that at this point. We do have some questions that have been filling up our email inboxes while we've been talking. And before, the first one is right in line with what we were already talking about. So let's just jump to it. John, who is one of our most faithful uh, radio show what do you what do you call it? Questioners. He's definitely a faithful listener. Inquisitor. He's an inquisitor. He's he, he's putting us on the rack every week with inquisition Um, he sent an article that's dealing with the major issue for China, the Belt and Road system and he says, what is Belt and Road? Now John I I know you know what this is, so I also know that you're taking the faithfulness to another level, quite often I think you know the answer to your own question but you think it's a good question and you would like to hear us talk about it, thank you the belt and road, you want to say what you said off the air, because it's actually quite humorous.
0: Actually, the belt and the road are the opposite of what they mean. The road has nothing to do with roads. It has to do with sea lanes and uh, ports that the Chinese are building up. And the belt has to do primarily with railroads.
1: Okay. So th- what we're talking about, the belt and road, is a major infrastructure external to China funding push by china why in the world are they building roads and improving ports in other people's countries because they're trying to redevelop the old silk road and to give you an impression of how big that was at the time the reason why the silk road kind of fell apart is when the ottoman empire took constantinople it didn't be, It didn't stay Constantinople very long after that. It became Istanbul. Okay. Well, that was the central hub of the Silk Road, and the Italians, which controlled Europe during the Renaissance, controlled Europe during the Renaissance for two reasons. Just they
0: didn't control Europe. They controlled commerce in Europe.
1: I would say they controlled Europe. Now, this is, I would this say is a quibble he... on the sectarian side. They controlled through commerce. On the religious side, they controlled through the Catholic Church.
0: Yeah, but there were several armies wandering around in Germany that would disagree with you on that. Yeah,
1: and and in Italy, for a lot of that, there was civil war. (laughs) But it was Italian families that kept handing the control back and forth, and to some extent, Northern Europe had some control here. But the reason why Italy, of all places, had so much control over the rest of Europe was because they were largely in control of the Silk Road through Constantinople. The reason that Columbus left for the Indies was to reestablish the Silk Road. This is something that is kind of an important part of history. We may not have, the Europeans may not have gone to North and South America as early as they did, except that the Ottomans took Constantinople. It's a tremendously lucrative trade to cross continents like that if you're the supplier or if, if you're the demander. So there's this long thought program, infrastructure. It's an expensive program, but it's likely to return very large amounts of profit to the Chinese for setting up this road that crosses through Asia and then into Europe. And the ports that do the same thing. It's likely that the Suez Canal is going to get some Chinese money dumped into it to help it expand. Well, why would they do that? The same reason why the Americans helped fund or helped funded the Panama Canal. Because it's an infrastructure program that's absolutely vital to the trade of the United States. And the Chinese are looking at other other marketplaces they want to increase the speed at which they can get their products to market
0: in an actual concrete example of how that's working right now the number of the volume of freight transported by train from china to europe has tripled in the last year why because the chinese invested a lot of money in infrastructure and railroads and doubling the size of railroads so they have twin tracks instead of single tracks and fixing bridges and straightening, straightening out bump places, bumpy places so the trains could move faster between China and Europe. And as a result, when the logjam occurred in the Suez Canal, they were able to Chinese uh, commerce with Europe was largely, well, not largely, but at least, le- least less affected than other places because they simply started loading things on trains and sending them to Europe. And why did they do that? Because the Belt and Road, the Belt part of the Belt and Road, had a lot to do with with improving the infrastructure both in china china gets you halfway to europe by the way by the time you get out of the northwestern chunk of china they've done a tremendous investment their government has done a tremendous investment in infrastructure to build themselves up so they can do commerce with the rest of the world and that's what they're looking at not just commerce and selling things but they've got to get their raw materials in, so they've actually been building ports in African countries where there's raw materials, so they can get the raw materials on their ships and get them back to China. This is a big em- emphasis on their part, is to make sure that they're not cut off from their raw materials and they're not cut off from their customers. Right.
1: Uh, for a great chunk of their resources, they can't produce them at all in China. Uh, they, they have little to no liquid natural resources oil natural gas is very low they've got coal but just about every large country on the planet is going to have coal that has a lot more to do with how coal was formed so so long ago than it does with where you are where the liquid stuff that you pump out to refine and put in your automobiles and and so on they don't have a lot of that which is part of the reason why they're moving out into the south China Sea they're saying well it already has our name on it so why don't we claim it so this is they're looking around and saying what are their major obstacles for the next 50 years and they consider our control of the the ocean to be one of their obstacles what if we get into a trade war with them well up before the Trump administration everybody said why would we do that we're trading with you why would we stop trading Well, the Trump administration said it's pretty easy for us to say it's a good idea to go to to a trade war with China. That trade war is not done, by the way. Just, Just because the Trump administration is gone, this is not something that's big in the news. The Biden administration has not released the tariffs. In fact, their meeting with the Chinese was more acrimonious than any meeting that the Trump administration had with them. So keep that in mind. We're still in a trade war. They're looking for alternative routes for their goods that aren't under American control. That's one of the reasons why they're doing this. Another reason is they want it under their control. So there are already some hot spots on the globe that have gotten hotter because of the Belt and Road system. Uh, The Vale of Kashmir is a really good example of that. Uh, The Pakistani side is having the road go through a chunk of their property under their control, although their property in this case, we're going to put quotes around there because nobody really knows who owns what in that area. Nobody's agreeing on anything, and which is why it's a hot spot. Well, there's a road that's about to go right through it, and this is causing the Indians and the Pakistani and the Chinese to amass armies around the Vale of Kashmir. This is part of the Belt and Road system. The Chinese believe this is by far, worth it to protect the transportation of their goods back and forth. Well, that's a pretty traditional Chinese mentality. It goes back way before communism. This is, this is a the road system in China. is very much like Rome, very much like the United States. So this is an extension of it and something that the United States has done similar things in the past, the Panama Canal being one of those very simple examples. Um, so hopefully we didn't beat the, the, what's the belt and road thing into the ground there, but I think we answered it.
0: Well, that's one of the reasons that there is a proposed infrastructure bill. President Trump wanted to have an infrastructure bill, but it never got through Congress.
1: And his infrastructure bill, by the way, what he was asking for is the same price tag that Biden is asking
0: for. And now president Biden wants an infrastructure bill and Congress is reluctant to do it again. But the point is the Chinese are investing dramatically in their infrastructure in every aspect of their infrastructure from 5G to electrical outlets to charge electric cars to roads and railroads and things like that. And they're actually pulling ahead of us in infrastructure. And I think that it's important that we do invest in infrastructure. Last time we had a major investment in infrastructure as a nation, a surge was back in the 1950s under Eisenhower, where we built the interstate highway system. He had to keep he, he he had to fight Congress on that one too. He had to put it in the defense budget to get it passed.
1: Right. And this this is a key piece of information. Infrastructure does far more for long-term growth than almost anything else that the government can do. I mean, when I say almost anything else, they have to have a military or we'll get invaded. Not having a military is kind of a, a bad idea when you're a major power. So put that to the side that's an investment hopefully we never have to use it but it's there then we need infrastructure and we need a good method of of reaping tax revenue on that infrastructure so whatever the infrastructure is used for if it's trade then you tax trade if it's tourism then you tax tourism that's that's kind of a basic tenet of economics and for some reason it's one of the hardest things for people to grasp Obama thought that it was something that would stimulate the economy immediately, and several other presidents have had that in mind, including George W. Bush, that, you know, you do this as an immediate stimulus push to get us out of a recession. No, that's not how infrastructure works. That's like saying we're going to start a 10-year housing project to stop the homeless people from living on my lawn today. No, that's not... (laughs) you got to understand different tools for different needs. This infrastructure push or any infrastructure push, needs to be planning for things that we're going to need over the next several decades.
0: By the way, I think it's totally appropriate to borrow money and then gradually pay it back like over a 10 or 15-year period, which is a proposal for the infrastructure bill that's, in, that's being presented to Congress now. It's totally appropriate to borrow money for infrastructure. That's an investment that actually pays for itself and then some over the long term because corporations, ge- corporations and people do things to generate income that they pay taxes on—that's what funds the government. And, and now we're going to
1: say something else here. The only time it's appropriate to borrow money for entitlement programs is when the economy is deep in recession. So,
0: mm. any anyway, the bottom line to it is: when you borrow money, any business person will tell you this. When you borrow money, you look at the return on investment. For example, right. there's a strong argument that the money that was put into the stimulus programs prevented some structural damage to the economy, a lot of structural damage to the economy. That's what Janet Yellen said in her testimony before Congress. And going big and doing whatever is necessary to prevent structural damage. What's structural damage? Structural damage is when businesses shut down completely and they don't open up again and you have a a spiraling decline. They go into receivership.
1: Basically, their stuff belongs to their debtors or the people that they owe money to at that point who don't know how to use the equipment to make money. If you live here in Central Texas and you
0: want to see structural damage, go into downtown Temple and look at the boarded up buildings. That's structural damage due to a downturn in the economy that wasn't addressed properly. Actually, structural damage basically due to the Great Depression and is still with us. And because the fact that the government decided to cut off spending and reduce spending during the Great Depression caused a spiraling decline that caused a lot of businesses to go out of business a lot of buildings to be abandoned and they'd be worthless buildings later on and they actually cost more to tear down than they're worth by forcing money into the economy during a severe recession or an event that's causing a severe recession the theory is and so far it seems to be working fairly well is we come back out of the recession quickly and most of the businesses survive
1: now the other half of the theory is the one that uh there seems to be some contest over which is how to get it paid back um, and that's an important factor that we do that that's the other end of this is that if you borrow a, a whole bunch of extra money it's a pretty important idea to make sure that you have ways of paying it back into the future without borrowing forever uh, increasing spending when your economy is doing really really well is not a good idea uh, increasing Decreasing.
0: Decreasing taxes when your economy is doing very, very well is not a good idea either.
1: That's right. That's when you collect the benefits from the past so that you pay back the debt. And it it seems pretty simple when stated like that, but that's unfortunately not the way it's looked at when everybody says, hey, things are doing great. Let's lower taxes. We'll do even better. Well, in certain cases, it's a good idea. And in other cases, it's not. But we have to play some commercials. Lots more to cover on that very subject. Uh, we'll be back on the other, other side of these commercials in just a minute if you'd like to join the conversation we have email addresses waiting you want to say your email address jeff at tpwc.com and i'm jake at tpwc.com that's tango papa whiskey charlie or the personal wealth coach and we're checking those as we go along we'll be back on the other side of these very important uh, announcements from our sponsors And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. And I am coming to you from Oregon, uh, the, the state, not what's in your body. Those would be organs. I have had that explained to me several times since I've been here. Uh, and he, Jeff is coming to you from Salado, which is in Texas little village in Texas and we're being transmitted from temple unless you're listening by podcast in which case you're being transmitted by your smartphone or whatever maybe your computer talk about broadcast we are casting broadly oh so we're back we were talking about when to pay back debt we were talking about taxes would you like to continue that I feel like I stepped in right in the middle of what you were saying
0: well there's an important principle in fiscal economics for nations and one is it's the same and you can relate to it if you've been through hard times and had to use your credit card to pay the bills you build up debts during hard times so that you can pay off your bills you can do everything that you need to do and then when you get good times and the money starts coming in that's when you raise your payment you payment back to the credit card company or you start paying off your loans or you accelerate the payment on your loans um the united states government works pretty much the same way during hard times. It needs to borrow a lot of money to make things happen. And it also probably and ideally during good times, taxes would not be lowered. They might even be raised. Matter of fact, they should be raised to pay back the debt that was, uh, that was built up during bad times. Now people have said, well, lowering taxes always produces a greater return in the economy. No, it doesn't. We're past the, we're past what's called the laugher point where Lowering taxes increases GDP. We're we're at the point where lowering taxes doesn't increase GDP anymore. It just increases the debt. And we can prove that. That's not something that
1: is, you know, just maybe. If you just look at the revenue return to the government on lowering taxes during uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And please don't get me wrong. Uh, Taxes were too high on corporations. We saw a bump in corporate tax revenue. Part of that was money coming back, but but part of it was that people were not afraid to sell assets in corporate levels and pay taxes on it because the taxation was lower. So we had a bump in corporate tax revenue. Kind of weird. We didn't see the same bump that we expected or that the politicians expected in the tax drop for the personal tax brackets, it stayed relatively flat, even though the economy jumped up quite a bit. Uh, the tax revenue didn't go up as fast as the economic growth. So it's a statement there. When we say below the Laffer curve, there's two ends of the curve. The beginning, you have 0% taxes. Well, the government gets no revenue, that's obvious. The other end of the spectrum is 100% taxation. And eventually, it means the same thing. The government gets no revenue. This is purely owned by the government enterprise, which means that in order for anybody to make a profit, they would pay 100% of it back to the government. That doesn't make any sense. So you get zero return to the government at zero and 100% taxation. Somewhere in the middle is the sweet spot. And it'd be nice if you said, well, that sweet spot is always right there. It's at uh, 27.19376%. Well, it moves around. And that's the crazy thing about the Laffer Point. It moves around based on what the economic conditions are. The same level of taxation in a good economy can destroy a business in a bad economy. And the level that will sustain a business in a bad economy is much lower than what a business could be sustaining in a good economy and that's really hard to be flexible with particularly when you have a group like congress that's setting the tax code and not that I think of I can think of any better way of doing it but at this I mean there there are other thoughts but congress is going to be involved the whole time Which means it's not going to be flexible. It's going to have opinions that are based in, I'm right, you're wrong, rather than, let's look at this correctly. The reality is that taxes being paid when the money's there to pay the taxes makes a lot of sense. And I know people hear me saying, well, that means you want to raise taxes. No, I want to raise taxes when times can sustain it. Right now, we're in a recovery. We don't want to dampen the recovery early on by adding taxes right after we take away the stimulus. That's, that is whiplash like you've never seen. You have to kind of carefully gut, judge when to add taxes. Oh, wait, Congress again. So this is what we're talking about. Lowering taxes now, just looking at the measurability of it, would not increase revenue. Raising taxes now likely would, but would slow down recovery. Raising taxes on the parts of the economy that are doing the absolute best right now is a great idea, but it's a good idea that you should lower them again if that's the part of the economy that's doing poorly in the future. We tend to make these permanent moves. We're changing the tax code forever based on this because the auto industry is doing so well. Well, until they're not. So having some flexibility in here is what Congress's role is supposed to be. And they do change the tax code a lot. So is that do you think that qualifies as flexibility?
0: Oh, it's flexibility, but often it's in the wrong direction. <laughs> Basically it's, it's often based on it's often based on who paid the most to the lobbyists.
1: Right. And uh we really need the ones that we, pay the most to the lobbyists are usually the ones that have the most money to pay, which are the ones that not always there's generalizations but are generally the ones that need more taxes I just it's
0: interesting it's interesting that several ceos have come out and said they don't they do not oppose the biden plan to raise corporate taxes to pay for infrastructure and there's a very good reason for that for instance amazon has come out and said that and there's a very good reason they're saying that they need to get goods to the people who are buying them that requires them to use the roads and the railroads and the other infrastructure items, and they're jammed right now. the, one so of the long one of those, term, if Amazon wants to grow, it's got to have better infrastructure.
1: Right. One of those major infrastructure pushes that is in the bill is broadband access in rural areas. I mean, it's coming anyway, but the faster it gets here, the better we are at trading with ourselves which is what allows us to be independent from the rest of the world and not really care about trade deficits too much because our biggest customer is us. In order to contain that, in order to keep growing that, we have to grow the, the routes of revenue, which right now are online. It's also to get the stuff to your door, Amazon might have to go over a lot of potholes and that costs them money. And if they see infrastructure improving, it means quicker delivery, which means that you could start a business in the middle of a tiny little town that reaches the
0: whole world if the infrastructure is right. The other place that infrastructure is hurting us right now is these backlogs in the major ports. The major ports are not built by companies. They're built by municipalities and states with support from the federal government. We don't have any money to do that right now. If we don't enlarge the size of our ports, we can't export and we can't import, which is going to eventually stifle our economy. Now, we, our China has been investing tremendous amounts of money in making bigger, deeper ports for container ships. We haven't. We have,
1: but we haven't. And we, this, this is the thing. This is This is the argument from the other side. But we have. We've spent a record amount of money on our port infrastructure over the last 10 years. We have. We've spent... Billions of dollars on it, mostly each port taking care of itself, dredging down to 30 and 40 feet. We talk, I talked about this a little bit last week. But even though it's a record amount we've spent, it's not enough to keep up with the demand for import and export. We're exporting a lot more oil than we used to. We're importing a lot more other things than we used to. Getting those ports up and running is the way we stay a major power. Keeping them dredged down so that the biggest ships can continue to use the biggest ports is pretty important. Get you see what I just said with the import and the port? It's Im- yeah. important. It's, yeah, it's I a pun. That. I important, to that little pun. Important there. to the port.
0: It's important to the port.
1: Yeah. And, and that word important, guess where it came from? Yeah. That's how important this is. It's the very meaning of the word important. So, when we're talking about this, it goes deep. And when we think about it from a common sense perspective, like what is the meaning of the word important, it tells you this is something that's been held as an economic truth since these words were made and before. Just need to keep that in mind. Even though we're looking around and saying, hey, it's somebody in power we don't like and take or pick. Pick or choose which administration you're talking about. Both of them proposed a $1.9 to $2.1 trillion infrastructure bill. Which one do you like? Well, not that one. And they're the one in power now. Or they were the ones in power. I don't like it. We still need infrastructure, guys. (laughs) Do you want to wrap up the
0: hour? Well, I can say that the economy is doing relatively well. It's growing fast. It's growing faster than we've seen since the 1980s. We're still not fully recovered, but we're well on the way. And we got another hour to talk about it.
1: Yeah. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.